Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Mr. Newark is a former Alberta Crown attorney. He's the former executive director of the Canadian Police Association and was a security advisor to both the Ontario and federal governments of Canada, was a senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety, and is an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. And we're going to be talking to Scott about three issues. And um, what do you say we start out with the one that's been getting a lot of positive response, but not from you and not so much from me? And that is that the Federal Correctional Service is starting a prison needle exchange program. Uh, And they say that this is that all the prisons have to have it. And it's to stop the spread of disease. So from your perspective, what's wrong with that argument? Well, um, first of all, I, I think the evidence actually is in what I've read that the, uh, there has been a decline in the, uh, the prevalence of uh, hep C from uh, 2007 to uh, 2017, which is when the uh, needle exchange program was cancelled. I, I, I was thinking about this when I first saw the story because it was an issue that uh, I remember was present when I was helping Stockwell Day, and I think it was ultimately decided, and the Conservatives revoked the needle exchange program, and I think entirely appropriately so. You know, it is absolutely true that there's obviously a disproportionately high number of offenders who are in jail because of their problems with drugs, and um, I just think it's, quite frankly, a betrayal of the you know, the, the basic concept of uh, our uh, intention to rehabilitate people that we give them the means by which they can illegally inject themselves with drugs. I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a bad idea for the offenders themselves. It also, uh, you know, the nature of the injection is through needles, which can be used as weapons, which potentially puts other inmates at risk, and um, as well to uh, the guards who work inside the prison. So, I mean, I think it is, for, to be perfectly blunt, I agree with the guy who is the, uh, the head of the union that was uh, quoted, uh, Jason Godin, who actually said that, you know, this is more a function of Correctional Service of Canada just throwing up their hands and, and giving up once again and just saying, sure, we'll let them go ahead and do this. I think it's terribly wrong. And then get somebody to write the news release. Yeah, And give course. it the positive spin. And many in mainstream media just follow along and say, well, it must be so because they said it so. Yeah, as opposed to asking the questions like, what are the consequences? What are I the think, consequences? I mean, I know you spent a significant amount of time involved with uh, CORCAN, with Correction Service of Canada. Yeah, well, yeah, I did. During my time as well, too, when I was asked to go and, you know, uh, visit prisons and speak with people, um, I think you did as well, too, in speaking with the inmate committees. Yeah. That's the, just for your listeners, that's the committees actually made up of inmates that theoretically have some influence on policy and on uh, grievances, things like that. And I, I remember a couple of different inmate committees talking about the desirability if they could, you know, only get Correctional Service of Canada to take some leadership, or the government of Canada to take some leadership and to consciously open, you know, drug-free prisons where inmates who genuinely wanted to get away from this wouldn't have to be faced with having these drugs and people on drugs around them all mm-hmm. the time. And they even said that they would, you know, be happy to participate in screening the people to get in there to make sure that they focused their attention on the people who genuinely wanted rehabilitation instead of letting, you know, the, uh, what's the phrase, the inmates run the asylum? Yeah. yeah. Well, when, when I did a show from inside Joyceville Prison and I sat in the warden's boardroom with the inmates committee, 
It was just our engineer, Philip Anderson, and me, and uh, and the and the inmates come in. No guards, nothing. Just just yeah. the inmates. And I'll tell you, Scott, after two hours of sitting with these members of the inmates committee, first of all, they were all highly intelligent guys, and then secondly, they made a lot more sense than the bureaucrats who ran Correctional Service Canada. And somebody said to me, "Well, when you when you say they're highly intelligent guys." What do you mean? I said, well, they were very successful at the careers they chose. Eventually, they were caught. Yeah. But when they were out, they were successful. Don't, don't expect these people to be stupid because they're not. And they, had, they, they made some extremely sensible suggestions vis-a-vis what we've heard from Correctional Service Canada, which so often is politically correct stuff. And I was on the uh, Federal Minister of Public Safety's advisory board for, correct, for CORCAN, and that's a program that is really useful. And uh, inmates who want to really learn a trade, learn the trade and they learn it properly and they have to live by the rules of the prison in order to continue to qualify for CORCAN. And then when they get the the diplomas, these are not prison diplomas or journeyman certificates. These are journeyman certificates handed out by the province in which they yeah. are in prison. So then when they get out of prison, they actually have a, a, a career they can go to. Really, yeah, really see, good I, program. I think that's the core issue is, is what I would call the lack of leadership at Correctional Services of Canada. Um, their metric of success is, you know, no muss, no fuss. Uh, they don't want to have a story in the uh, the news. They want to be able to say, oh, yeah, we delivered these programs as opposed to whether we've actually had an impact on reducing recidivism rates. It's why they're uh, uh, really uh, not exactly open about providing the most relevant information about things. And I think this is just the uh, the latest program. It's probably... You know, um, at a political level, my guess is it's probably well-intentioned without somebody asking exactly the kinds of questions you're raising, because they do need to be raised. Yeah. Well, we, uh, you and I will never forget when a Correctional Service Canada spokesperson referred to you and me and everyone who has not right. been convicted of a criminal offense as non-convicted individuals living in the community. Yes. <laughs> I suppose it is all the lens through which one sees the world. I suppose. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. A bit of criminology, a bit of criminal activity going on at the border yesterday between New York and Quebec when the Antifa thugs showed up. Yeah. You look at these people, you know, none of them would, could, could survive 30 seconds in a bar fight. But, but they show up there and they start to rough up women, which is a, a you know, real, real sign of courage and commitment. And, uh, and so now we have that going on, plus we have the border being uh, overrun in some cases, and thousands coming in that are not supposed to be in the country, and Trudeau is doing nothing, the square root of nothing. Um, and now they're going to bring a whole series of border officers, CBC, CBSA officers, might as well take the CBC there too, uh, CBSA officers to the border for what purpose? They need them there. Uh, they have to uh, do processing uh, oh, after the RCMP yeah, yeah, uh, detain them and then ask uh, virtually, uh, they act virtually as a valet service. Yeah, yeah. And they drive them to the CBSA office uh, down the official uh, office of the CBSA, which these people are avoiding. That's when the process kicks in and the second stage of interviews and screening and everything else goes on and scheduling dates for subsequent hearings and things like that. So if they show up. It's a necessary part of the process, but it was inevitable, Roy. And this is something people have warned about for quite a while, uh, that this was going to occur. When you add an additional unexpected uh, demand on resources like this, you're going to have to take resources elsewhere. 
and in particular has now manifested itself in, um, I'm told, in uh, southwest Ontario um, land ports of entry and as well at uh, airports where literally uh, passengers are on planes and being told uh, we're going to have to sit on the plane for an hour because the uh, customs clearance is all backed up. Um, This is is not an accident, by the way. This is something that was... uh, uh, forecast and has been spoken of, and in full disclosure, I, among the other things, uh, I'm one of the guys that did the review that led to the arming of CBSA officers back in uh, 2006. It was, in fact, the reason to make sure that got done that I went in to help my friend Stockwell Day, who was the new uh, minister, because there was such fierce opposition to it. Uh, and I still do work with the union. And this actually goes back, this officer shortage actually goes back to uh, budget 2010, when the Conservatives decided, understandably, that they wanted to reduce spending so as to achieve a balanced budget. They introduced something called the Deficit Reduction Action Plan, or DRAP, that was supposed to cut uh, you know, duplicative bureaucracy and unnecessary management, things like that. Well, that's how it was applied throughout government. But at CBSA, it actually resulted in the cut of frontline positions. And I mean officers working at primary inspection, Mm -hmm. secondary inspection, domestic intelligence, uh, export uh, clearance, um, the uh, international uh, intelligence, immigration enforcement and removals. Since the time that it started and these cuts were made, there has been a reduction of approximately 1,100 frontline officers. From a total of how many? Guess what? Of course there's a shortage of frontline. From a total of how many? Approximately 1,100 positions have not been refilled. Okay, I got you. But we, do, do you know how many people there were before the 1,100 were? Oh, it was, the numbers got up, I think, as high as about 11,000. Okay. But 1,100, 10% is going to be felt. Well, of course it is. Yeah. And it's just that it hasn't been, they haven't been refilled on the positions. Yeah. So, but what's the point, you know, as you say, what's the point of taking the, to the border in Quebec when when the border is only being overrun and the only people who are being checked are people who go through the in-place border crossings, which may be Canadians coming home, and they're being asked if they bought too much alcohol. Well, no, that's the point, is that even when the people cross the border illegally, mm-hmm. they are delivered or chauffeured by the RCMP no, I get it. CBSA office. I get it. So we've got to have the personnel on the ground to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. But when that happens, that means we are reducing resources and as you, you alluded to quite correctly, I mean, we've got other situations we have to deal with, like returning jihadis coming from overseas. The, um, uh, the potential. No, but the Prime Minister says if you do anything about that, you're being divisive. He's wrong. Okay, it's an you expectation think? of uh, public safety. People have the right to have their government institutions do that. Yeah. Um, we've got, it's going to be a nightmare with the legalization of marijuana, with drugs coming both, uh, you know, back and forth both directions. We're not going to have the capacity to deal with that. If we ever do fix this illegal entry, you watch. Uh, People will start coming not just to the point where they can walk over to the RCMP, but between ports of entry, which CBSA now is not allowed to participate in, and again, because they don't have the resources to actually do it. Mm. And that includes, for example, people in the United States who are non-citizens, criminals in the United States, who if the Americans start to track crack down on them, you guess where they're going to come. Yeah, I, yeah. I include gang members in that. I have to I have to move you to the last topic because sure. we only have two minutes, but when you mention the gang members, I spoke yesterday with uh, yeah. with um, Yeoman Grillo, 
who is uh, international experts on Central American and South American gangs. Oh, I'm S13, yeah. Yeah, the uh, the picture he painted, very, very These frightening, are real terrifying. Bad guys. Terrifying, really bad guys. Yes. Who are ready to ter- overturn governments. Uh, now, Professor Diab, you've got about a minute and a half to fill us in what happened. Okay, bottom line is this is a guy who was a, uh, originally from uh, Lebanon. He came to Canada. He was believed, uh, I think it was in 2008, the French authorities said, oh, we have reason to believe that he was the mastermind of this uh, Palestinian jihad attack on a synagogue in Paris in 1980. Uh, they wanted him brought back. The French system is not like ours, though. There were no charges against him. It was for, in effect, investigative purposes. And so our extradition act kicked in, which is a very, very old statute. And the evidence against this guy was really, really sketchy. He was extradited. Uh, he spent three years in custody before France finally went, oops, I guess there really isn't any evidence. And so they returned him. And his lawyers have been trying to point out how the system needs to be reformed. And I, I obviously agree with that. Mm-hmm. What just happened last week, actually, or earlier this week, I think, was that um, uh, CBC ran a story, that it, and it obviously got information leaked from the Department of Justice, just like what happened with Omar Khadr. got 20 seconds. Somebody leaked information about what was going on. Yeah. That not only was the evidence against this guy deficient, but in fact Canadian Department of Justice lawyers withheld relevant information from the courts, including exculpatory evidence, where the French sent over his fingerprints and the RCP did okay. a test and they didn't match. So he should That's not have shot. been extradited, more than likely. Pardon me? You should not have been extradited. No, you should definitely not have been extradited. What worries me is we need, in today's world, we need to have a system of integrity that the courts will trust. Thank you for the call. Thank you for the time. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney from Alberta. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Well, I've made a a very public commitment that the first order of business that I will do will be to repeal Justin Trudeau's federal carbon tax. He is imposing this as an Ottawa knows best top-down approach. Uh, on provinces that do not want it. And I believe uh, that it is completely ineffective when it comes to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and it just becomes another source of revenue. Uh, It's going to make Canada's economy completely uh, uncompetitive against uh, our, our trading partners. And, uh, and I will I will repeal it. Conservative Party of Canada leader Andrew Scheer on the carbon tax and what he will do if he becomes Prime Minister of Canada. And I bet a hundred bucks. Well, they decided on the hundred bucks. With Catherine Swift and Michelle Simpson that uh, Andrew Scheer will be the Prime Minister after next October's election, federal election. And I haven't been wrong yet. Oh, yeah, I think somebody's going to owe me some money as well on the... Uh, on who's going to end up paying for at least part of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Yeah, one of my colleagues may end up owing me some money. He was on my program, and he was quite adamant that that wasn't going to happen, and I told him it was, and then he said, well, let's bet two bucks. Should have gone for more. Anyhow, Andrew Shear says no carbon tax if he becomes prime minister. Now, Mr. Trudeau's going to have problems anyway if Doug Ford is elected Premier of Ontario, and the polls suggest that he will be, although much of uh, much of mainstream media seems to be trying to edge it toward Andrea Horvath and the NDP because they know that uh, Kathleen Wynne is kaput. Um, we don't know for sure how voters will respond. I know though any, anybody who was around for 1990 to 1995 under Bob Ray, I know how you're going to vote. But I don't know how the millennials are going to vote. 
So we will see how that turns out. But if Ford becomes the premier of Ontario, he certainly has said he will ditch the cap-and-trade plan, which Andrea, Andrea, which, uh, well, I guess Andrea, Andrea Horvath probably keep the uh, deal that Kathleen Wynne made with Quebec and California. What a strange little triumvirate. Ontario, Quebec, and California. And who's making money off this? California. Anyway, so that would be it for the carbon tax, or at least that would be a big fight for Trudeau. And if Jason Kenney becomes the premier of Alberta, which the polls suggest he will, and the election takes place anywhere between the 1st of uh, March and the 31st of May, at least that's what the plan should be in Alberta. We don't know what the current premier may have in mind, but I think she's obliged or obligated to have the election before the 31st of May. And if Kenny becomes the uh, premier, I don't think there's much doubt Mr. Kenny will also jettison the uh, carbon tax. And Saskatchewan's already said, forget about it. And uh, Manitoba has their own own version and thumbing their nose, kind of, at Trudeau. So that'll be really be the end of it. Because you can't move forward with only six provinces. And you can't move forward when you've been fired which I think Justin's going to be next year. So I want to talk to uh, Tom Harris. I've, Tom is, uh, Tom's a brilliant guy, and he has been on the issue of climate science for a long time. He's taken a lot of heat for his positions, but he's very thoughtful, and he's the executive director of the International Climate Science Coalition. And uh, he wrote a column titled, Canada's Climate Change Plans, All Pain, No Gain. And uh, that column ran in Toronto and Winnipeg and Calgary and Edmonton in the Sun Papers. And, of course, this program airs in all of those markets and and many more. And uh, so we have Tom Harris joining us now. just want to say this. According to – and I'm just taking this from Tom's column. According to the director for the study of science at the Cato Institute in Washington, a reduction of 90 million tons per year of greenhouse gases – which is the maximum that's expected for Canada's plan under Trudeau, uh, would result in, get this, would result between 0.001 and 0.002 degrees Celsius less global warming by 2100 than would otherwise occur, and it would be at a huge cost to Canadians. And you know that Dr. Bjorn Lomborg has been on this program, international scientist and economist, and he said after the Paris Agreement, all that's going to do is cost the civilized countries, uh, civilized, the Western nations, I don't want to say civilized, the, uh, the uh, developed countries, uh, a trillion bucks and accomplish nothing. It was even less. He said 0.001 degree would, um, would be the, the result. So Tom Harris joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network, Executive Director of the International Climate Science Coalition. Tom, uh, where do we start? Well, we have to go back and say, okay, do we really know what's going to happen with the climate in the future? I mean, we know climate changes. We're not climate change deniers. We're recognizing that climate always changes on a planet with a dynamic atmosphere. If it didn't change, we'd still be stuck back in the Ice Age. The real question is, will our emissions of greenhouse gases cause dangerous climate change in the future? And that's the only excuse that you could really mount for spending this kind of money. 
you know, the problem is, I mean, over the last century, the temperature of the Earth, which is sort of generalized over the whole planet, has only gone up something like a degree Celsius, and that certainly hasn't been catastrophic. So unless there's dangerous climate change ahead and we're the cause, then all of this money that's being spent is a total waste. And when you say our responsibility, then we have to look at it whether is it a global situation or is it a Canadian situation. And from our perspective, we have to look at the Canadian reality because it's the Canadian taxpayer who's going to be funding the Canadian climate plan, which Mr. Trudeau has, or the carbon tax plan, which Mr. Trudeau has kept quite secret, hasn't he? Yeah, that's right. But, you know, on April 23rd, my birthday, it was a great birthday present, there was a report put out by the Office of the Parliamentary Budget Officer, and it projected that a federal carbon tax will lower Canada's GDP by $10 billion in 2022 compared to a scenario without the tax. And so, yeah, the costs are enormous, and those are probably smaller than what will really happen, because at 2022, we'll be at $50 a ton, and we're going to have to go a lot higher than that if we actually want to meet our Paris Agreement. Look, is how much of this is really worth pursuing? How much of how much is uh, is the carbon tax? Is the carbon tax at all worth pursuing? I go back to Australia, two thousand and fourteen. They had a carbon tax and they dumped it because the Australian government said all it's doing is harming our economy, it's harming families, it's harming individuals, it's not doing anything for the country. So they got rid of it. Um, it, is, yeah, there, is there anything? Wild. Is there anything in the carbon in a carbon tax, whether it's provincial or federal, that is ultimately going to be significantly important? No, it isn't because they're taxing the wrong stuff. I mean, most of the emissions, the greenhouse gas emissions that they're taxing, are carbon dioxide, and carbon dioxide is plant food. It's not pollution. And if you don't think that carbon dioxide is causing dangerous climate change, and we don't think it is, and many scientists are on our side, then indeed it's not worth controlling. What you should control, though, is real pollution. Things like sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxide, particulates, lead, mercury, those are real pollutants. Okay, that's worth controlling. But what people don't realize is things like these carbon tax and, of course, the clean power plant in the United States are totally misnamed because the only thing it focused on was carbon dioxide. And, you know, you have to remember, Roy, that plants evolved at a time. Most of the plants around today evolved at a time when CO2 was much higher in the atmosphere. And that's why we pump CO2 into greenhouses to get much enhanced growth. And they also grow better with less water. So the idea that we are going to control the climate by CO2 emission reduction at an enormous cost is, is ridiculous. In fact, there are some agricultural scientists, believe it or not, Craig Itso, for example, uh, at the Center for the Study of Carbon Dioxide, uh, he actually talks about increasing CO2 on purpose so as to actually increase yield. And in fact, he has a, a lot of things that they're writing about how agricultural yield has gone up incredibly over the last few decades as a result of CO2 rise. Mm. So, you know, this is the wrong target completely. And Andrew Scheer, unfortunately, is saying he's going to meet the Paris Agreement targets, but he's going to do it through regulations. Now you have to ask then, is that going to be cheaper or more expensive? And according to Ross McKittrick, who I think you've probably had on, I have, yeah. it's, not, yeah, it's not clear as to whether or not the conservative plan, which will probably be regulations, or the liberal plan, which is regulations and taxes and you know, cap and trade and other things, it's not clear as to which one will be more expensive. So having a, a conservative government may not get us out of this at all. That is a very good point. That's a very good point, because to what, what you're getting from the conservatives here is a political answer. Right? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's purely political. They're not asking the basic question. And the basic question should be, Miss McKenna, what will your plan accomplish in the real world? What will it do to the climate? 
And of course, she'll try not to answer. She'll try to say, oh, we have to lead the world because one one thousandth to two one thousandths of a degree doesn't sound very impressive. So she'll probably say, like Gina McCarthy said in the U.S., That's right. the head of the yep. EPA, that we had to lead the world to stop climate change. So then you have to ask, well, is the world going to follow us? And as we can discuss, if you'd like, it's very clear they're not going to. Well, that's also the guilt complex, the guilt trip. If we're not leading the world, then we must be doing something wrong. Then we're not doing what we're supposed to do because we're a privileged country, because we're a first world country. And so to head off this international crisis that is heading our way, we're heard time and we're told time and time again, we have to, to lead the world and lead the way. And so people succumb, and uh, yeah. some more willingly than others. And, you know, Tom, the, the argument that's gone forward over and over and over and over for years now is that this is how we save the planet. Now, this is how, the, the true fact of it is, this is how Western economies are going to be placed at a disadvantage versus so-called emerging economies. And so we're going to, the Western economies, the, the, the first world economies, are going to be forced to, uh, to, to underwrite the developing economies in a manner which is going to be not complementary to the people of the, of the first world economies. There's a way to do all of this without lying about it or without, without um, maneuvering people into a disadvantageous position, which is what's going on. We know that yeah. the, the head of the IPCC, uh, he, he predicted that all the, what was it, the, the uh, Himalayan glaciers would all be gone by 2015. Or, yeah. And then he had to admit that he made it up. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, one of the things people don't realize is that... Pachari's his name. Yeah, that's right. You know, the Paris Agreement, everyone says, oh, everyone's covered under the Paris Agreement. How wonderful. Oh, these nasty Americans, they dropped out. China's even covered. Well, guess what? China's targets are that they can increase their emissions until 2030, okay? In contrast to us, we have to reduce ours by 30%, you know, down below, I think it's below 20, 2005 levels by 2030. But, yeah. but regardless, even that they may not have to keep because under the Paris Agreement and under all UN climate agreements is something called the Framework Convention on Climate Change. And in fact, it says specifically, and I'll read it, it's a one sentence which tells you the whole thing is, is ridiculous. Economic and social development and poverty eradication are the first and overriding priorities of the developing country parties. And, and they don't have that for us. Okay, so anything that's going to hurt their economy, they don't have to do because their economic and social development, poverty eradication, that's their first priority, not closing their cheap coal stations yeah. to reduce greenhouse. Tom, if you harm the economy that has the power to help developing economies, you're hurting both sets of economies with zero productive results. Stay with us, Tom Harris. We'll come back with Tom, the executive director of the International Climate Science Coalition. His column is Canada's climate change plans, all pain, no gain. Stay with us. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Tom Harris with us now, executive director of the International Climate Science Coalition. His column, Canada's Climate Change Plans, All Pain, No Gain. So walk us through in uh, the time we have left, about three minutes. Tom, what are you telling Canadians who are still going to say to you and say to me, no, you're wrong, the climate is changing dramatically, humankind is, or people kind are responsible, and if we don't do what we're told to do with carbon taxes and, and the like, then the planet's going to be gone for succeeding generations. Yeah, well, we tell them a couple of things. 
first of all, you should check the data, the real data. How much is the Earth warm? Okay, even if all of that was caused by humankind, one degree Celsius warming in a century or so is actually being a good thing because we were coming out of the Little Ice Age. So I say to them, so you're basing your fears and you're basing what is over a billion dollars a day being spent around the world on climate finance, you're basing it all on computer models, okay? Computer models that if you actually go back 50 years and you plug in the data, you don't get today's conditions. So the models simply don't work. So the real question then is, okay, real people suffer due to climate change. Natural climate variability, you know, causes desertification and melting permafrost and all kinds of things. So those people should be helped. That's real adaptation. The UN wanted half the money to go to that kind of thing, real helping people today, and the other half they wanted to waste, unfortunately, on stopping climate change. But because of the fact that the money is to be made trying to stop climate change by building wind turbines or carbon credit trading, What's happened, Roy, is that 95% of that billion dollars a day is going to try to stop climate change sometime in the future. The real people today who need help are not getting the money. Now, this is where I think left-wing social justice warriors should be really upset because it's kind of like having your child bleeding to death in front of you. And instead of helping them with their bleeding, you pull out a university calendar and start looking at what university courses they might take next year. You know, I went to the Copenhagen Climate Conference and the Africans were outraged. They were saying, you're spending most of this money on what might happen to people who have yet to be born. We need help today. But they can't get it because the climate scare has taken over the minds and the common sense of everyone so that they dump all the money into trying to stop what might happen instead of helping real people now. And that's where, to me, it's a moral travesty. And I think even the left have got to see that. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, when he was on this program, said several times roughly the same thing. There are millions of children in developing countries in the world who are sick, who are going to be sick, get medication, get medicines, get what they require, give them that, provide that. That's the first step you take. And then you can worry about other things later, but provide the necessities of life that are required now, today, provide them now, provide them today. The other stuff, you do it as you can. But a trillion dollars thrown at climate for something that may or may not happen 100 years from now, well. And they're never definitive. They're never definitive, Tom. It may happen. It could happen. It might happen. It, you know. Well, also, there's a Trojan horse in all this. They made an agreement in Warsaw when they had the big yearly climate conference, uh, I guess about three years ago, uh, called the Warsaw, it's a strategy for loss and damage. And it's going to hold the developing world, sorry, the developed world will be held responsible for loss and damage due to climate change that we supposedly in the West have caused. My friend, I have to go, but I thank you, sir, and we'll, we'll have you back. Thank you, Tom. Okay, thank you. Tom Harris, Executive Director of the International Climate Science Coalition. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Let me read you uh, a few lines that that I received about the book Operation Medusa. In 2006, David Fraser was the Canadian general in charge of the Joint Military Command in Kandahar Province, Afghanistan. Like the troops under his command, he was in no way ready for what happened on Friday, September 1st of that year. He'd been woken the night before by his intelligence officers, who informed him that the Taliban were amassing on all fronts for an all-out battle. The NATO alliance was about to engage the enemy in the greatest and bloodiest battle in their 70-year history, and they were grossly outnumbered. At first, the facts of Operation Medusa were deliberately withheld as classified, 
then muddied by imprecise and isolated personal accounts, exaggerated by rumor, misstated by ambition, or just rejected outright as irrelevant. The details of these events are still unknown by citizens of Canada and her allies. And yet the truth about those 15 agonizing days between September 2nd and 17th is astounding, and that's what you find out about in the book Operation Medusa, written by Major General David Fraser, Canadian general who is in command of NATO forces. General Fraser, it's an honor to speak with you, sir. Thank you for taking the time. Roy, it's great to be with you today. When you had that message delivered, when you were told on the night of September the 1st, 2006, that the Taliban were amassing in huge numbers and were ready for a battle that you were and your forces were in no way prepared for. What was that like? What did you do in the hours pre- following that message and when the battle started? How do you prepare for that in such a short period of time? Well, first of all, I think what the readers will find is it's just shocking that, uh, A, we went over there to build a nation, but we ended up having a battle that, as you said in your intro, uh, was the biggest that you know NATO's ever had. It was the biggest battle that Canada's had since you know the fifties in Korea, and you know it's shocking to actually get an intelligence report that uh, five hundred enemy have massed with their top ten commanders, and they want to do battle with you, and NATO is not there to support you. So, uh, for Canadians uh, who were on the on the battlefield, it was. Um, it was a very dire situation, and uh, this book really brings out those men and women story about just how, how nip and tuck this whole thing was. And the Canadian troops you had had never, in the words of the book, never had their noses bloodied before. Uh, no, I mean, uh, these soldiers, sailors, airmen, airwomen uh, were battle untested. They were not combat experienced, and uh, their first uh, battle to you know cut their teeth on was the biggest one that Canada's ever had, but... Uh, NATO's ever had in, in over 50 years. So, yes, it was, you know, for them, a lot was riding on their shoulders. The reputation of Canada was on their shoulders, the reputation of NATO, and uh, that's what this book really brings out, is just just how much was at stake and just how, how uh, absolutely incredible and impossible the mission was. Were all 37 nations engaged? In, in, in short, no. And that was the biggest shock of this whole battle, uh, was just when I went to my boss, David Richards, and I said, you know, here's the enemy situation, here's what I need. And he said, in turn, you know, you, David, you've got everything I've got, but I've got no troops to give you because of national caveats. You're pretty much on your own. And, you know, that was a really shocking message uh, back to Ottawa for General Hillier and the Minister of Defense and our Prime Minister at the time, Stephen Harper, that uh, nobody was coming down to help us with the exception of the Americans, the British, and the and, uh, Dutch and Danes. And the Americans didn't have a lot of confidence in in the in the fighting ability or the preparedness of Canadians. No, they didn't. And, and the book, again, goes into some detail about, you know, our state of readiness at the beginning as compared to what the Americans wanted and expected uh, for a force to fight because they still thought we were peacekeepers and not up to this either politically or militarily. And so there was tremendous concern uh, about whether or not we were up for this. And uh, so that made the stakes even higher because there was tremendous doubt on their side. So the Taliban, how prepared were they? Uh, you know, we we often don't 
accept the fact that these, first of all, they're probably excellent fighters and they were well equipped and they they were determined. So what were you, who were you facing? Tell us about that. Who were you facing? Well, you know, the, the actual fighters themselves were, were passionate, determined uh, warriors. You know, this was their ground, so they knew it inside out. They, they blended into the ground. They didn't wear uniforms. They didn't abide by any rules that you and I would understand whatsoever. But the, the Taliban leadership were ruthless, uh, driven, passionate uh, people who were really uh, evil, when, it, when you think about the word evil, but very good at making strategy and plans. So you, we had kind of the worst, absolute, the worst conditions for the perfect storm on, on this battle. I was just shocked to read that you ran out of ammunition in the first uh, after four hours. Uh, it, it, well, I actually I actually dropped the f bomb on that one. I, I was even more than shocked. It was, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time every morning, you know, going through things like ammunition and water and medical and making sure we had all the right resources at the right place. And you know, I still remember Tim Bishop walking into my office and essentially saying garbage in, garbage out because people had not been putting in their expenditure reports, what we thought we had, we don't. So that was, you know, anything that could gone, could have gone wrong with this battle did. Uh, that was one of them. There were, I had to phone Omer Lavoie in the field, in contact, to tell him to slow down, not because of what he was doing, but because of some administrative issues that we had. And then had to phone Ottawa to say, you know, because of administrative issues that we have, uh, we're actually running out of ammunition. And, and Ottawa was, again, shocked to find that uh, at the time when we needed it, everybody in the world was firing it, and we had to actually send an airplane down to New Zealand to get it. Um, there were two, 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 two sets of campaigns going on. There were the special forces, and there were the conventional forces. How did that work out? Can you explain that to us? Exactly. Uh, the special forces, which includes people like the Green Berets and, and also, you know, special forces that work in the black world, uh, operated completely independent, differently, and not in any uh, shape or form in contact or coordination with us. And then there was us, the rest of the, the forces there, the Army, you know, the development people and uh, the diplomats um, trying to do our thing. So from a command and control point of view, this, this mission was uh, impossible would be an understatement. And it really built, was built on relationships and whatnot, but notwithstanding that, we still had big problems, including on the 4th of September, where because of a friendly fire incident, uh, uh, two operations happening, ours and the, and the American Special Forces, um, um, Charles Company got strafed by an American plane, which killed one soldier and wounded 34. I've spoken with one of the soldiers who was in that, uh, in that company. He lost part of his brain. And uh, he's he's been on this program on a on a couple of occasions. Was that also the 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 uh, the battle where the um, the American fighter jet dropped a bomb on uh, on Canadians? Was that on Operation Medusa? Uh, that one was back earlier in two thousand and two uh, at the Tarnak Farms, but um, very nearby where this happened. So unfortunately, uh, friendly fire incidents like that are not. Um, atypical. They uh, are things that we have to contend with every day in today's conflict. Yeah, I ask that because that pilot was on this program and he expressed such incredible 
remorse over, over what had happened and explained to us what had, what had gone on, which left him totally confused about what he was supposed to do and, in fact, where he was. So it, not, not that you faced any confusion. Uh, you were facing overwhelming forces. You didn't know – you weren't ready for this. Uh, you were dealing with uh, all the NATO countries. All of them have their own rules and their own expectations. Probably half of them have different ammunition. And uh, and you're going into in a battle with a with a with a with a force that is determined to defeat you because if they win they basically win Afghanistan. Uh, and that's that was the big, you know, going back to the first that was the big takeaway that the enemy had never fought like this before, uh, and and this is where the readers will really you know find this book compelling that when you pick it up you'll be astonished. That, you know, everything you've heard about in the paper, but there's this little moment in time where the Taliban do something completely unexpected, mass all their power, come after us and try to take us on. And had they succeeded, uh, and this is where the story is just riveting, is uh, Stephen Harper government was in a minority situation. He would have actually been exposed to many uh, questions and criticisms from the opposition. The, uh, Great Britain and the Netherlands were the same. NATO's credibility as an institution was being uh, challenged, even in, in this battle, was being challenged by the partners. And uh, the Afghans themselves uh, were actually wondering whether or not that we were up to help them when they asked us to help them. Uh, and that would have uh, come right onto the men on the shoulders of the men and women of, of the uh, forces to uh, determine whether or not that all of the cards above them would have come tumbling down had they not succeeded. Was there ever a time where you wondered whether you would succeed? For those, you know, four or five days in the Labor Day weekend, I, I have to say that uh, I wasn't quite sure whether or not we were going to be able to do this because, A, we didn't have the resources, the, the things that were happening, like crashes of uh, British surveillance aircraft killing 12 on board, you know, the the 3rd of September where we lost four soldiers in Charles' company, not having the resources, having nations not show up and changing their minds every day. Uh, this this was something I wasn't even quite sure whether or not we were going to get through. So you'll see in the book that, you know, you know what what we have done here is try to, to paint a portrait and, and, and a picture of you know, essentially two people playing chicken and somebody was going first. But uh, who was that? Uh, I'm, at some stages, I think both the Taliban and I, we weren't sure who was going to blink. Uh, the good news is that the men and women that uh, fought there uh, didn't lose the battle. And in Operation Medusa, we're going to find out things that we didn't know until the book came out, right? Yeah, exactly. As, you know, you know, for the first time, this, this is an account that pulls all the pieces together. Uh, from the political down to the to my level and, and below, and it really complements everything that's out there. That's what would be I would classify as a personal account. Here you've got essentially we brought in David Richards, my boss. Uh, brought in Ben Frankly, the American boss I had. We talked to Mike Gauthier from the Canadian side of the house. So we brought everybody in to to bring together their recollections and their stories in one book that can tell you. You know, not just what was happening in NATO's largest battle, Canada's largest battle, but also uh, some of the some of the supporting stories about you know how good or how weak NATO really was. And so this really is a, a pretty important book for people to read and understand as we even look forward to missions going forward today. Oh, I agree, and uh, you know, there's a greater understanding of 
and a greater appreciation of the military now since the Afghanistan campaign because you have and nothing not to take anything away from uh, from the military uh, who fought in in previous wars my dad being uh, one of them um, it, it, there's a connection there's a generational connection and so there's an understanding and people know you know my neighbor's son fought or my neighbor's daughter fought or, or my daughter fought or my or my son enlisted or, or joined so there's that there's that immediate connection and to know that the the significance of operation Medusa you're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. The Canadian forces, General Fraser, within that battle, how well did we do? How well did they distinguish themselves? Well, I think the short answer, they certainly did distinguish themselves. They gained the credibility and the credit from the Americans who were completely doubting of their abilities that they were capable of fighting. Uh, Canada as a nation completely uh, established uh, a credibility because of our political commitment from both parties, uh, what we did there. And I think the men and women of Canada across coast to coast to coast, when they came and supported their soldiers when they came back or when they, you know, we had fallen soldiers coming up that highway of heroes and seeing those bridges lined up with, you know, Canadians. I mean, that attests to just how much people in in this world have actually seen what we did, but it was at a horrendous sacrifice. And there were, uh, you know, you know, shortfalls that NATO uh, didn't come in and support us when we needed and expected their support. I remember speaking with uh, Major General Lewis McKenzie on a number of occasions during the uh, Afghanistan conflict, and he would uh, talk about, he, was, he wasn't very happy with the fact that many of the NATO soldiers seemed to be, uh, I wouldn't say on vacation, but they were staying back in Kabul while Canadian forces under your command were fighting in uh, the southern part of the of the country. And it was, uh, as you said, there were three or four countries that, that, that did all of the fighting, at least that's my understanding from Operation Medusa. Um, is, is the alliance as strong as it needs to be? It could, if this happened again, would, uh, what would the chances be of, of winning again? Well, I don't think the alliance has changed at all since this. This, this battle really opened and exposed the alliance's weaknesses. Um, I know General Hillier and the minister at the time, you know, really challenged NATO. Uh, General Jones, the Supreme Allied Commander of, of Europe, uh, who was, you know, in charge of all those NATO forces, really found out that he didn't have a, a military force or a political force that was committed to a, a real fight like this. And there were a lot of people, as you say, uh, just came out to actually drink tea and, and coffee, but weren't out there to actually help Afghans uh, build a nation. Yeah, they only spit shine their boots once. Uh, absolutely. So I don't think anything has changed today, and so I think we're living on sort of a, a false pretense of what, what the uh, organization says it's capable of doing, and you don't know until you're actually pressured, but, you know, what this what this story is, and I think the readers need to read, you know, just how close we came to, to losing this battle. And if it wasn't for the few, um, this we wouldn't be where we are today. So I think the many are enjoying the privileges by the efforts of a few, including Canada and Great Britain. Twas, a, Canada. twas ever thus. Twas ever thus. Uh, General Fraser, we have about 30 seconds left. Can you talk to us a bit about, in that time we have, about the significance of the battle? Because when we look at Afghanistan today, about 75% of the country is controlled by the Taliban. Yeah, you know, I, 
you know, Canadians should be really proud of what our men and women did, but they should also be shocked and uh, angry about what, what the coalition didn't do and support support us and support Afghans. And I think, you know, that's 12 years ago. And let's let's look at operations like today in Maui. And I think Canadians should be asking those questions about, you know, will the UN be able to support Canada and, and other nations step up to uh, mitigate the risk for our men and women? The lessons we learned 12 years ago are still applicable today. And... Um, Canadians should know and actually ask a lot of questions about it. This should be a copy of Operation Medusa in the home of every family in this country by Major General David Fraser. General Fraser, thank you for what you've done for us at Operation Medusa and throughout your career. It was an honor to speak with you, sir. Roy, thank you very much. All the best. All the best. Major General David Fraser. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. It wasn't so long ago that the world was holding its collective breath over the issue of the Ebola virus. And uh, while I was in uh, West Africa, it also started to drift, made its way into the United States, made its way into this country. And uh, it has reappeared in the Congo and some 4,000 doses of Ebola vaccine have been shipped to the Congo. The deaths have been numerically increased to 26. It doesn't sound like much. But the World Health Organization, according to Global News, said on Friday that they'd sent Ebola vaccines to help in battling the outbreak in the Congo and said there's a particularly great risk of international spread, but the response to the outbreak has been encouraging. I don't know how much of that is uh, is trying to make people feel more comfortable or less less anxious, but uh, I think most people, when they hear the term Ebola, become anxious just by default. Jason Tetro, microbiologist, Canadian, known as the germ guy, the author of The Germ Files and The Germ Code, two books that need to be in your personal library. Uh, Jason, you're our go-to person for providing us with the necessary information in a way that we can all understand. So the reappearance of, of Ebola in, uh, in the Congo now, and sufficiently so concerned that 4,000 vaccines that haven't been completely finished as far as their testing is concerned have been sent there. What does that mean? Well, I mean, we knew this was going to happen, first off. Um, you know, Ebola is one of those bugs that's out there in the wild. People go in the wild, people get it, they'll bring it back to their local villages, and, and this has been going on for you know well over 40 years. So that's not a big deal. Um, when you start to see an increase in cases, we always see that it's not a big deal. <clears throat> it becomes a big deal when it starts getting into an urban environment, and that happened just recently. So when that happens, um, the likelihood of people being infected, uh, one person will probably infect about three other people. And that's kind of a problem, because when you start getting into places that have, say, 1.2 million people, or if it gets down to the capital and you start looking at 10 million people, you can see how this can be a problem. Right. We have West Africa. Right. So right now, the best thing is to try and isolate the virus so that you can make sure that you can deal with the people who are infected, and then that will, what we call, stomp it out. Unfortunately, people tend to run. <laughs> And they run away really fast. And when that happens, you start to see spread. So if you can't stop them from running, because we know quarantine doesn't work, it just makes them run more, you're going to have to find a way to protect the population, and that's where the vaccine comes in. Now, it's been a race. We have the vaccine. We know it's about 100% effective. And we know that it's just got to go through the right number of trials. So it was a question of, 
is Ebola going to get into a, 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 a metropolitan before we can get the vaccine to be you know, properly tested? The answer is yes. So it's experimental, still works about 100%. And there's still only enough cases, I think it's uh, 26 deaths, 46 confirmed, three in that urban environment, so that we can actually develop what is known as ring vaccination. And if that happens, then we can stomp it out by protecting people as opposed to telling them not to run. Uh, I was just reading here that it started in a city uh, of more than a million people, and now it's in the capital city. It has to be detained, or it has to be contained, yeah. in 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 the area that it's in now. If somebody who's infected gets on an airplane and flies somewhere, that's the scenario. That's the scary scenario, and mm-hmm. doesn't have symptoms when they get on the plane, uh, but is contagious, which nobody would know. Then you have the X factor, right? Well, yeah. Uh, I don't want to scare people, but but I guess I am. I mean, we already saw that down in Dallas. Right. Um, And so we know that the possibility is there that that's going to occur. What's really interesting is that if you were to go into an airport anywhere in the uh, Congo at the moment, you're going to be looked at. You're going to be tested for your temperature. I mean, and and if your temperature is high, it doesn't matter what you have. Uh, You could just probably have a cold you're probably going to be having a nice little visit over to secondary where they're going to ask you a whole bunch of questions. Mm -hmm. And so we now have these screenings in place, thanks again to the West Africa epidemic. Um, So the likelihood is that it's not going to do sort of spread out of that region. I think what's really more important right now is that it's still, it's not in Kinshasa right at the moment. It's, it's in uh, Mabadanka, which is a, you know, that's the 1.2 million people place. It hasn't yet gotten to the capital. We have to make sure that it doesn't get to the capital because then it's going to become a real problem. Uh, and it could end up being, you know, something like SARS was because we had that here in Canada or yes, we did. Ebola down in, in the States. I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're going to be able to stop this in time because the World Health Organization and other countries like Ghana are actually sending people who have complete expertise in this to be able to you know, get that ring vaccination in place. And then once they've done that, then they'll hopefully be able to treat the people. And that's the other thing is that we actually know how we can treat people to lower the actual fatality rate right. so we can get people to trust the medical officials, as opposed to before the West Africa outbreak, where basically Ebola was a death sentence. Yeah. You know, we only have a few seconds, but uh, I'll tell you, uh, it made me think about the conversations we've had about uh, antibiotics not being as effective as they were, and the great concern about antibiotics. And that got me thinking, if we see something like this about Ebola, uh, maybe our greater concern is antibiotics. We just have to have a, a wide open uh, view of everything that's going on globally as far as health is concerned. Jason, uh, thank you so much. Always always a, a, a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. It is a pleasure. Take care. All the best. Jason Tetro, microbiologist, the germ guy. The books are The Germ Files and The Germ Code. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.